Let's pray. Father God, we thank you. You are on your throne. That you are in control. That you are sovereign. That you are all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present. You see us. You see our uncertainty. You see our confusion. You see the chaos in this broken and sin-riddled world. And you care. You offer grace and mercy and hope in our time of need. And so, Father, we uh, come to your word. We have gathered together in in a spirit to honor um, your, your commands for us to do just that, to not forsake the assembling or the gathering of ourselves together, as is the habit of some. And Father, we know that in these uncertain times, it's difficult to know um, how uh, to do this, um, what is right, what is wrong, uh, when to honor uh, governmental authorities and, and when to potentially uh, exercise um, in a spirit of humility, potential civil disobedience. And so, Father, we pray that you would be the God of angel armies that goes before us and behind us, you, that your spirit would continue to guide and direct us. And Father, I pray that um, you would give us wisdom. We need your wisdom from above. Father, we don't have the answers. Only you are all knowing and all wise and all good. And so, Father, we pray that you would continue to shine a light uh, unto our path and, and make our, our path straight and known to us, Father. Uh, we pray these things in Jesus' name. We pray that you would be lifted high, that you would be glorified this evening, that we would be uh, drawn to the foot of the cross, that we would see Christ high and lifted up. We would gaze into a tomb and we would see it empty. And we would remember, Father, that there is hope despite all the difficulty and circumstances and trials and tribulations of this world. Uh, we can rest confident knowing that you are a good father. So, Father, we pray that you would use your word now to change us, to mold us, to make us into what you would have us to be. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis chapter number 37. Genesis 37, titled The Message This Evening, Joseph and Things to Come. Joseph and Things to Come. I don't know about you, and, and maybe you can help uh, my household settle potentially a long-standing uh, discrepancy and debate. There are two p- kinds of people in this world. You ready for this? The one kind of person is the person who enjoys and sees value in movie trailers <laughs> and those that despise them. You thought I was going to say something uh, more eternal and uh, spiritual at that moment, I know. Uh, but I, I don't know how many of you had this debate in your home. My wife loves trailers. She's the one who gets a new book. And the first thing she does is she flips over the back and reads the summary of the whole entire book. Uh, she wants to kind of get an idea of the plot and the players. And to me, I, it's, it's, it ruins it. It ruins everything for me. I want the surprise of a plot. I, I don't want to know the characters' names. I just want to partake in uh, this form of entertainment and, and see what happens and be surprised. And uh, trailers do what? They just they let you know what's going to happen. And that's my big beef with it. 
Right? I don't want to know what's going on in the movie. I, I wanted to let the movie tell that story for me, right? And that's kind of what we have going on here in Genesis 37. We have kind of a trailer, a movie trailer, if you will, into the next 13 chapters of, of Genesis, right? We have Joseph, his father, his brothers, and some very interesting interactions between all those players that are going to set the stage for us and cast uh, some vision into what's going to happen in these these coming chapters. It's, it's hard to believe, uh, from my perspective at least, maybe you would think otherwise, it's hard to believe that we only have 13 chapters left in this, this series through the book of Genesis. We have, I did some rough uh, tallying uh, here of weeks. We have roughly 18 weeks and 13 chapters. We'll see. There's a good possibility that we could get through this Genesis series by the end of the year and potentially tee us up for a new preaching series uh, as we kick off 2021. But regardless, we want to trust the Lord to continue to faithfully work through the text and to preach it uh, rightly. And uh, so we'll take as long as we need to to do that. But uh, 13 chapters left. That's it's it's pretty amazing to me. But Genesis 37 right here, it actually marks um, another shift in the book of Genesis. We've we've called out some different themes and some purposes and some things shifting from one group of chapters to the next. In chapter 37 right here, we have another shift, right? Um, and that shift is this. The rest of the book of Genesis is really all about the life and the happenings of Joseph. Um, it, it's, it's interesting as you look at the book of Genesis that Moses, uh, obviously by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, gives this much uh, content to the life of, of Joseph. Uh, you think back on all the, the big name players in the book of Genesis, uh, going back to the very beginning, we've got Adam and, and Noah. We've got the, the patriarchs of the nation of Israel with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? That just rolls right off the tongue. How often do we say that? And, and proportionately, uh, Joseph kind of steals the show here, right? There is a lot that Moses, by way of inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has to say about the life of, of Joseph. And uh, I, find that, I find that interesting. We've uh, often uh, referenced um, in this series of Genesis the dangers of, of not deploying a, a literal and historical hermeneutic, right? And that's just what? A, a method of interpretation, uh, we want to interpret Genesis literally. We want the word of God to speak for itself without us deploying, remember these terms, eisegesis, us reading into the text an idea or some other agenda or bias that often happens through um, some more different types of liberal preaching and teaching, right? We want the text to stand alone. We simply, through exposition and study, we want to just simply draw out uh, exegesis, draw out of the text what God has for us in his word. And so I want to remind us as we dive into Genesis 37 and we start talking about dreams and we start talking about some different nuances that will happen uh, through the life of Joseph that we're not going to stop doing that now. We're going to continue to deploy uh, that method of interpretation and be faithful to that. My responsibility, Dave and Andy, as elders and pastors of this church at Liberty Hills, we have a great responsibility on us to handle the word of God rightly and accurately. 
And so we make observations in the text. And one of them is simply this. 13 chapters is a lot about Joseph. And so that simple observation caused me to take a step back and just say, why? Why? Why does Moses, through inspiration of the Holy Spirit, devote so much time to Joseph? What is the purpose of this? Is there significance of why Joseph has this much content recorded in Scripture about him at this time in Genesis? So by way of introduction, my task and my goal, my heart, my prayer is that we can lay a foundation this evening of understanding Joseph in potentially a fresh and new light. Um, My goal and my prayer, my heart is that we can lay a foundation for some of the themes and some of the purposes Uh, that that come out of the life of Joseph and this story, and that we can look back to those as we continue to work our way through these uh, next few chapters. But friends, my concern, it's a challenge, it's um, a a tendency for us as we continue to work through Old Testament narrative, for, for us to look at a character in Scripture and to say, hey, you know what? The takeaway here is just to be a... A Joseph. Just be like Joseph. We're going to look at different scenarios of his life, different circumstances, different situations. We're going to see how he responds and reacts. And if we're not careful, we can just fall into this trap of saying, hey, you know what? Just be like Joseph. And at first glance, you, may, you might say, well, what's the big deal with that? What's the problem with that? That sounds, that sounds good. Let's, let's do what Joseph did if it honors, honors the Lord. And I could get behind that to some degree, but what's the danger in deploying that type of hermeneutic and conclusions and applications of an Old Testament narrative? The danger is, is that we make the story about Joseph himself. We make Genesis 37 through 50, these 13 chapters, all about Joseph, and we prop Joseph up and we make him the hero of the story. As the household of Jacob is going to go through many, many trials in the days ahead, I'm not going to steal any thunder, we could see Joseph slip in and him become the object of Scripture, as opposed to what all of Scripture is designed to do is to bring glory and honor to whom? God. Because this text of Scripture is certainly not about Joseph. Our lives... The story of our life is not about whom? It's not about us. Our salvation, our Christian walk, I'm saying that tongue in cheek, is not about us. It is about God in his grace and his mercy reaching out to us, initiating through his providence, his divine election, and his goodness and grace and mercy, choosing to be in relationship with us. It is he that initiates this work. And friends, it's important for us to take a step back and remember some of these very elementary and foundational reminders as we work through the book of Genesis. So we're laying this foundation. My goal, again, is to answer this question of what we are to do with Joseph and why is he so prominent in Genesis? Let's consider some of the themes that we will see present in this final section. We clearly see 
Once again, as I just mentioned, divine election continuing to be a core theme of this covenant relationship that the Lord has established with Abraham's line. All the way back with the introduction of this covenant relationship, Abraham didn't do anything to earn God's favor, did he not? In fact, it was despite Abraham and his sinful nature and his poor choices that God chose him out. And that covenant relationship was passed down to Abraham, Isaac, and now into Jacob's household. And we're going to see divine election out of all the brothers and the men that are available and present for this covenant blessing and promise to pass through Jacob's household, which it will in some way, shape or form to all these brothers because they're going to make up the nation of Israel. But specifically, there's divine favor that seems to come on the life of, of Joseph. God uses him in a special and unique way. But get this, it wasn't anything that Joseph did to earn this type of special favor in the eyes of God. It was divine election. It was God choosing to continue to work out this covenant relationship and to extend those covenant promises and blessings specifically and in a special way to Joseph. Do we not once again see it so clearly in this text that David read earlier this evening, but we see the sovereignty and the providence of God that is just going to be dripping off of the pages in these final 13 chapters through the story of Joseph. And if you've been in the church at, at any amount of time, if you've heard a series or if you heard sermons or if you've read it yourself, you can think of things that are going to happen that are going to go on in the life of Joseph. And it's going to highlight big shocker here. Once again, God alone is sovereign. Amen. His rule and authority is over all things at all times, over all peoples. Amen. And although circumstances and sin and the effects of that sin may seem to cause chaotic circumstances around us, God is working in the midst of that chaos. He is present in that chaos. And guess what? His story of redemption, his perfect plan of redemption cannot be thwarted. Why? Because he alone is sovereign. We're going to see this theme continue to be elevated as we work through this. It is God who remains the hero of this account. Not Abraham, not Isaac, not Jacob, not even now, the hero of Genesis, the hero who sustains a nation and the tribes of Israel through famine and hardship. It won't be about Joseph. It's going to be about God. So, friends, this is yet another great opportunity for us to remember and recalibrate our hearts and our lives around this truth. And, and Please, I pray that the Holy Spirit would use these opening comments to just allow us to dive into the story of Joseph with a, a proper mindset and understanding. God never intended to just be an add on to our lives. He's not an afterthought. He's not just a good option if you choose to go that route. Genesis is crying out to us that God is, period. There's nothing that 
needs to be added to God to make him more appealing, to make him more relevant, to make him more impactful in this time, in our history, in our culture. God remains to be. Whether society rejects him or receives him, God never ceases to be. For it was in the earliest pages of Genesis, chapter one, verse number one. Do you remember it? In the beginning, God. So, so for us to remember that and for us to recalibrate our hearts and our minds that maybe God is just this thing that you're being a part of on Sundays or in our case, Saturdays right now, or maybe it's just something that, hey, you know what, it's kind of a good frame of reference to bring our kids up and it's just kind of a good idea. It's how I was raised and, hey, you know what, I feel better when I go to church and hey, if God is anything less than an ultimate authority, fully sovereign over your life, then we're missing the point of who he is. Amen. And Genesis is crying out to us for us to see the bigness, the greatness, the awesomeness, the grandeur of who he is. And for that to challenge our sinful hearts, because what do we often do? We try to insert our own sovereignty into our life, in our circumstances. Say, so, hey, you know what, God, I was... It was great, but hey, I got it from here. We try to take control. We try to insert our wisdom and our understanding. When God is the one who created wisdom, who defines wisdom, who imparts understanding to his people through his word, by the Holy Spirit. So friends, these final three chapters, as we see God use Joseph to do great and mighty things at his time, and in his culture, we're reminded that again, it's not about Joseph, it's about God. It points us back to these early chapters of Genesis, we're reminded that he spoke all things into existence. Friends, he's calling us to be in relationship with him. Unworthy, unwilling, in active enmity and rebellion against this God. Romans 5, 8, while we were yet sinners, what did he do? Christ died for us. So this Genesis account given to us, again, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit through Moses, reminds us that the story of the Bible isn't about me, you, or us. It's about God and his glory, making a way to be in relationship with his image bearers, his creation. This is a story of redemption, the gospel, of which we saw the first glimpses. Do you remember where we first saw it? Chapter 3, verse number 15. Where it is foretold that although the serpent would bruise his heel from the seed of Eve, there would come a Messiah who would ultimately crush the head of the serpent. That's the gospel. And the third chapter of Genesis, pointing forward to the perfect one who would fulfill all the demands of the law, who's perfectly holy and able to atone for the sins of of mankind. So then the point of Genesis and the key takeaway from Joseph should not and cannot be just how to have a better life. How to navigate difficult circumstances. It can't be about, hey, you know what? What are the steps for men to follow when we fall into compromising situations? It can't just be about, hey, here's three steps of how to forgive and forget. 
It can't be about, hey, you know what? Here's how you navigate suffering. Are all of these things present? Friends, I'm not taking light of them, but we can't reduce and minimize these final 13 chapters of just self-help type of philosophies. This has to be still because it is about God's sovereign plan of redemption working out for the history of all mankind. Friends, it's right here in the life of Joseph. We're going to see it. Why? Because Joseph is what we would call a Christological figure in the Old Testament. God is going to use the life and the interactions of Joseph to point us to look forward to the perfect fulfillment of law and prophecy through none other than the personal work of Jesus Christ. So Joseph, by way of introduction, should be viewed in this Old Testament narrative as a type of Christ-like figure. Just as we have seen to this point, and all of those that have come before, Joseph too will be imperfect in this role. He will fail. He will be inadequate. He is not the one who is alluded to back in Genesis chapter three. But what he does do is serve for us an example of how the one to come, Jesus Christ, will sacrificially love through serving others. And this Joseph account looks forward to how Christ will be perfectly glorified through what? Suffering. And ultimately, this Joseph account demonstrates how there is exaltation through what? Humiliation. As we see so perfectly lived out in the life of Christ in the pages of Genesis chapter number two. So friends, this story of Joseph it's much more than just story time at Liberty Hills Bible Church where we can read a story about a historical figure in the Old Testament. This is about us seeing Christ. This is about us seeing the cross, looking forward to the gospel and remembering for our day, the church age, that we have been given this sure hope that Christ did come he did shed his blood on the cross of Calvary and he did make a way for us to be made right in the eyes of God and for that relationship that was broken to be restored. So let's dive into these first 11 verses. Our big idea of the text this evening is this. God is merciful and gracious to use our imperfect lives to accomplish his perfect and sovereign plan. Let me say that one more time. God is merciful. Simple definition of mercy is what? Not getting something that we do deserve. He is merciful and gracious. Simple definition of grace. Us getting something that we don't deserve. That is grace. He is both merciful and gracious to use us Broken, sinful, rebellious mankind to do what? Accomplish his perfect and sovereign plan. So this evening, we're going to work through these first 11 verses. Uh, I, I will give the caveat that I, I'm well aware of our, our time this evening. I know we have communion and friends, this is going to fold 
by God's grace so perfectly into our communion time. So, so hang with me. I'm going to be conscious of our time. We're going to work through these 11 verses uh, in an appropriate pace, but quickly. And we're going to point out three simple observations this evening concerning God's perfect and sovereign plan through these first 11 verses here in chapter 37. You could even say uh, that this could be almost viewed as threats to God's perfect and sovereign plan. But we're going to see each one of these um, overcome by God's sovereignty, by his power, his goodness, his mercy, his grace. So the first observation this evening is this. God's perfect and sovereign plan will be completed despite Joseph's pride. God's perfect and sovereign plan will be completed despite Joseph's pride. I'm just going to give you these these three points. We have Joseph's pride. We have the brother's jealousy. And we have a father's apathy all present right here in these, these first 11 verses. So our first one, again, is it's going to be accomplished. It's going to be completed despite Joseph's pride. Joseph's sin nature is no doubt, abundantly clear right here in this text. We're going to see it even in in the the pages ahead. We're going to see it come out in in different ways and shapes and forms. But if there's one sin that rises to the top as we observe Joseph's life and kind of these first impressions, the sin that you can point to, no doubt, is, is pride. Let's look at our first couple of verses. Verse one, Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a, a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah and his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report to them, to their father. I literally just had these conversations with my children here recently and and do pretty much every week. Um, I say, children, uh, when you're having a conflict with your other siblings, don't be a what? Tattletale. We have Joseph here being a tattletale. And some of the context that comes after this tells us why Joseph may have established this type of disposition within the household. So he brought a bad report to them, uh, of them, to their father. Verse number three, now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all of his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. So no doubt the dynamics within this household are less than healthy, to say the least. We have a father who has laid the foundation for this conflict in this, uh, for lack of better words, atmosphere in the home to be present. Uh, Joseph has been conditioned and groomed to think more highly of himself. Why? Because he is literally held up more highly than any of his other brothers in the home. And so no doubt this could be looked at as a failure of the father. And we'll speak of that, make a few comments of that in our third and final point. But Joseph, he he thinks he's a pretty big deal. Um, He's got this coat of many colors. These are signs of even a royalty, uh, this multicolored 
a robe that was given from Jacob to uh, Joseph. Uh, he's become a tattletale. He's become the eyes and ears of dad out there in the pastures as they've been shepherding. Uh, there's uh, been Joseph being uh, propped up and given special favor and favoritism from Jacob himself. And so Jacob, or excuse me, Joseph's pride has become a problem. He knew he had standing in the eyes of his father. He knew the favor that was shown to him by his father. And this proud disposition seems to be more and more clear as he leverages that status to do what? To communicate the reality of these dreams. So follow me. Verse number four, but when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, what did they do? They hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Could not speak peacefully to him. Has somebody ever gotten under your skin so much so that uh, you just knew the best thing to do was to not see that person, <laughs> to create distance between you and them uh, Maybe they had it out for you or maybe they had some agenda that you would feel sabotaged and they were just looking for an opportunity to take advantage of you. I don't know all the circumstances, but sometimes let's be honest, we don't always get along with every person out there in the world. And there's some people that just rub us the wrong way. Maybe they're within your family. Maybe they're outside your family. Maybe they're at your workplace, a, a neighbor that just seems to know how to push your buttons, right? Who's mowing that lawn at 530 in the morning or you know, letting that dog do its business in your front lawn that you just have perfectly manicured. That's not a personal testimony, I promise. Uh, that's somebody else, I'm sure. But no, we, we have these challenges in life, right? And, and clearly, Joseph is aware of the tension and the conflict that is there because none of his brother, brothers could even do what? They couldn't even speak to him peacefully. So it's not like Joseph was just this upright, righteous character that just, hey, would hey, I, I have no idea that you guys don't like me. You know, I'm just oblivious and deny. No, jo Joseph knew. This was the dynamic where it was difficult. There was tension. You could cut it with a knife. It was a real conflict between these brothers and Joseph. We can't understate this enough as we lay the foundation for future chapters. There were big problems between Joseph and his brothers. I'm not being sensational. This is, I, I want to make sure we get it, right? Because this is, this is going to make sense as we continue to work through. But we've got problems. We can point to the brothers. They didn't respond right. We can point to a, a distant and uninterested father. But ultimately, Joseph had ownership of his life, his actions, his responses. And he certainly was doing what? He was leveraging his status, his position, and certainly his delivery at minimum was way off in these next few verses and it did nothing to ease uh, the tensions within the home. So here we are in verse number five. Now Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. Verse six, he said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field. And behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves stood, excuse me, gathered around it and bowed it down to my sheaf. His brother said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him 
even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream. Salt in the wound here, right? He dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and 11 stars were bowing down to me. When he told it to his father, to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. So as we looked at these verses 5 through verse number 11, we no doubt see this, um, this core structure of these verses is built around these two dreams. Okay, So I, I want to take a moment to... Um, to speak into this idea of dreams. And uh, if you remember all the way back in our, again, talking about interpretation and our hermeneutic, we, we committed to stay focused on what? The, the main thing. We want the main thing of the text to always be the main thing, right? We don't want the minors to be the major. We, we want a major on the majors, right? And so ultimately what we're attempting to do here is for us to consider what is the core idea and thought of this text. Just as Genesis 6 was not about what? It wasn't about the Nephilim. Genesis 37 isn't primarily attempting to establish a big biblical theology of dreams. Right? So I, I want to just remind us when these things come up in Scripture, we want to talk about them. We want to know about them. But yet we don't want an ancillary item in a text, a minor, to become a major. Right? We want to focus on the meaning and the purpose of the text. And Genesis 37 verses 1 through 11 isn't about dreams. It, God uses dreams, but it's not about dreams. You see the nuance there. You see the subtlety in, in that description. So, so the danger here is that we can miss the actual point of the text by allowing ourselves to be distracted by our own biases that we often bring to the word, that we can often grab onto the word. Why? Because it tickles our fancy. Why? Because uh, we just want to run down a rabbit hole. Why? Because we're interested in that idea or that purpose. And we, we're just studying scripture for our own benefit and for our own purposes instead of looking at scripture and allowing it to speak for itself and us to get the true meaning of a text. So a quick observations concerning dreams. First, God has used dreams in the past to communicate to mankind. Simple statement. God has used dreams in the past to communicate to mankind. We've seen this in our book of Genesis. We saw this uh, as God too came to uh, King Abimelech. Do you remember this? Right? He, he came to King, King Abimelech and, and he warned King Abimelech about his taking of, of Sarah into his household. He said, you are but a, a dead man. Right. That occurred from God to King Abimelech in a dream. God used that dream to communicate a very specific message to King Abimelech. We saw this back in Genesis 28 as God came to Jacob in a dream. Remember Jacob's ladder 
He felt the presence of the Lord in that moment. And he named that spot, that area Bethel as a result. So let's be clear. God has communicated to mankind through dreams to accomplish his plan and his purposes. I think many times for us that might grow have grown up in a conservative strand of Christianity and, and evangelicalism, we feel very uncomfortable with the supernatural elements of God's nature. Right? We we are, are fearful of them. Why? Well, we have good reason to be fearful of them. Why? Because some in the umbrella of Christendom or even outside Christendom have abused these supernatural elements of God and his relationship with mankind and have leveraged those things for their own gain and for their own purposes. So friends, we want to be careful to uh, not be uh, reactionary. We want the, 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 the word of God to define who he is. We want the word of God to define how he relates to his people. And we want the word of God to define our experience is with him. Amen. Right? If we have an ex, a, a spiritual experience and we're going to claim that tag, it better be present in the word of God explicitly. Amen. Or else we can't claim that it is a spiritual experience. Because the word of God is complaint. It is without error. And it is for our good. So point two, observation two concerning dreams. We have the word of God. And it is complete and sufficient to impart wisdom and understanding to mankind. Look back to Hebrews chapter one, verses one and two. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, verse two. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. So as we look at how God has communicated, Hebrew tells us that he communicated in many different ways. But in these last times, we have God communicating directly to mankind through the living word, the word of God becoming flesh, John 1, 1, and dwelling among us and us be, beholding his glory, the glory of the only begotten son of the father, full of grace and truth. Right? So we have the word of God and it's complete and sufficient. We're reminded of this of in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 19 through 21, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pray attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy from Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Right? This is the Holy Spirit of God working through men of God, not just some, hey, I've got this idea or this thought, hey, this is a good thing that we should try this kind of seems like this or that. No, this is clearly defined in Scripture. And men of God spoke. It was complete. It was valuable and profitable. We see 2 Timothy 2. 
excuse me, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for what? For teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped, or other translations say perfect, equipped for every good work. Friends, there's nothing that is lacking in the word of God. We don't need to add on some other experience. We don't need to add on some other desire that we might have for for tongues or for dreams or some of these other things that we can go down rabbit holes. God, the word of God given to us right here, it is is good and complete. So our third observation is this, that God, that said, God will continue to use dreams in his time and for his purposes. The qualifier here is this. That although God has used dreams in the past, and although he has given us a true and better prophecy, although we have the word of God and it's profitable to equip us and to train us, to prove us, to correct us, God will continue to use dreams to accomplish his purposes. Peter quotes the prophet Joel in uh, Acts chapter 2, verse number 17, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created. Let's turn over there real quick. I think I may have grabbed the wrong verse here. Let's turn over to Acts chapter two real quick. In the last days it shall be, God declares in verse 17, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Friends, it's clear that God has communicated in the past. This isn't outside his character. This is how he has engaged with mankind in the past. He calls it out in the future. And friends, he can and is able to use dreams to communicate to man, God, mankind even Yet today, but friends, I would say this. Is he able? Yes. Is it normative? I would say no. Right. Why? Because we've been given the word of God in in Jesus Christ. So we have everything that we need there. But God is God able to leverage dreams and use dreams to communicate? Absolutely. Yes. And so, friends, if you want more uh, than that, or if you want to talk about that, maybe offline, I'm happy to do that. But hopefully that is helpful and maybe giving us a high level understanding of, of dreams and its purposes and roles within the world. So Joseph here, again, is communicating these dreams to his brothers, somewhat in a disposition, in a spirit of, of pride. There's tension, there's conflict among the brothers. And this leads us to our second point. God's perfect and sovereign plan will be completed despite his brother's jealousy. Again, these are threats. These are threats that could be uh, described in this way to the perfect and sovereign plan that God is going to work out in the days ahead. Will his brother's jealousy thwart or derail or do away with the perfect and sovereign plan of God in using Joseph in the way that he has planned? answer that question is a resounding no. We see here an interesting progression as we examine these brothers. We see a progression of sin in this household. 
And do you see it? Joseph's pride clearly rubs his brothers the wrong way. Their father's favoritism, again, seems to further fuel the angst that these 11 brothers have towards Joseph. And once again, we see dysfunction at the highest levels. And I don't know about you, this is encouraging to know that even covenant uh, families, covenant households are, are dysfunctional, right? That makes me feel a little bit better about the dysfunction that I can have sometimes in, in, in my home. But we have a lot of dysfunction, a lot of tension, a lot of conflict present right here in Jacob's household. Why is there dysfunction here? Because these individuals are simply sinners. Being in relationship with God doesn't mean that they are glorified completely at that given moment. No, it means God continues to sustain that covenant relationship despite their imperfect faith or their imperfect Fellowship, God's sovereignty and his purposes, again, will not be undone for anything. Joseph's pride, these brothers' jealousy, or anything else that we could describe is going to undo what God has firmly and already established before the foundations of the world. Everyone seems to be concerned in our text, in this household, only with posturing themselves over one another. They have grown to literally despise their brother. Look at me in verse number four, the language that's used here. They hated at the end of the verse, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Look at verse number five. They, his brothers, they hated him even more. I mean, I don't know how you can hate somebody more where you can't even speak peacefully to them, but apparently you can, right? They hated Joseph even more. Look down at verse number eight. We see another description. So they hated him even more upon the even more that they already couldn't speak of him peacefully at all. I mean, these guys cannot stand their brother, Joseph. Here it comes. It all comes to a head as the root of all their anger and their hatred is exposed as what? Look at me, verse number 11. It says this, and his brothers were what? Jealous of him. Brothers were jealous. Friends, if we could hit the pause button here this evening and consider the jealousy of our own hearts and so how it is so prevalently deployed in our hearts and sometimes even externally towards those that are in our life, in our home, in, in the church, for churches to be jealous of other churches, for a, a, a business uh, businessman or woman, a teacher, whatever your profession might be, to look at the success of somebody else and to desire that, to be covetous of it, to be jealous of the favor that they are experiencing in their life. Friends, this is a root that will just literally rot out our hearts. And it will leave a wake of destruction and devastation of broken relationships, severed friendships, torn apart family members. All because of what? Jealousy, wanting something that somebody else 
as desiring it for your own. These brothers simply wanted what? Favor of their father. They desired the status. They desired uh, the position of wealth and, and ease potentially that came along with Joseph being propped up in his household in this manner. It wasn't about them wanting to recalibrate a healthy environment in the home and trying to bring Joseph down to a more normal relationship. This was about them desiring what he had, right? They were jealous. They desired the pedestal. They desired the status. They desired the favor from their father, and they were jealous of him. Is the jealousy of these brothers, is it going to derail the plan of God to use Joseph in this way? We're going to see this in the days ahead. Uh, I won't provide too many spoiler alerts here uh, this evening. This brings us to our third and final point. God's perfect and sovereign plan will be completed despite his father's apathy. His meaning Joseph's father's apathy. God's perfect and sovereign plan will be completed despite his father's apathy. The bottom line to this household dynamic is that Jacob is 100% responsible for it. I mean, certainly the sin nature of all these brothers, they're, they're not off the hook. But as the head of this household, as the father of this home, we as fathers are responsible for the atmosphere and the dynamics within the relationships in our home. The fact of the matter is that Jacob unashamedly loved Joseph more than his other sons. Everyone knew it. He wasn't trying to hide it. And Jacob simply didn't care that they knew. Why? Because he loved Joseph more. There's a, there's a, a proud spirit even, even in Jacob's interaction within the home. But there was an apathy about his, his father as well. He knew this tension was present. I mean, he, again, the, the, the tension could be cut with a knife. You could see the dynamics. The brothers couldn't speak peacefully. If Joseph was mentioned, these brothers were rubbing his name through the mud. That's what it means to not be able to speak peacefully of someone, right? Everything was negative that came from the brothers in regards to Joseph. Jacob was aware. He knew and he simply didn't care. He didn't care about the dynamics in the home. He didn't care about a right relationship between these brothers. He didn't care about the damage that Jacob was causing in the life of his sons as a result of relating to Joseph in this way. Emotionally, spiritually, many other ways, I'm sure, as well. Jacob was causing great harm within his household as a result of his apathy. He has sins of both commission and omission. Jacob certainly wasn't doing things that he knew he should do. And Jacob was doing things relating to Joseph in a very inappropriate way that would, that would cast a negative perception on the rest of the brothers. This apathy that Jacob chose that he allowed to foster and to fester within the home. This, in large part, is going to lead to the chaos, the horrible loss and heartache that is going to occur through this family in the coming chapters. It's all because 
Jacob chose to be apathetic. He allowed this dynamic to be present in his home. So friends, as we bring this to a close, Joseph's pride, the brother's jealousy, Jacob's apathy, ultimately sin, as we couple all of that together, represented a major threat to God's plan and purposes being fulfilled. But because God is truly sovereign, he would not be denied. And spoiler alert, his perfect plan and story of redemption would be fulfilled in the personal work of Jesus Christ. The father did send his son on a mission to seek and to save the lost. And he, meaning Jesus, did go to the cross as a perfect sacrifice and did shed his blood there at Calvary. And as such, he did atone for our sins and therefore making a way for mankind to be reconciled back to the Father. Friends, this evening, this is the glory of the gospel, the most beautiful and complete and precious message that could ever be told. This is truly good news. This good news that Jesus has come is jumping right off the pages of Joseph's life right here in these final 13 chapters of Genesis. And we're going to see it clearly. Don't just try to figure things out on your own. Joseph is broken. Jacob is broken. His household is broken. Abraham, Isaac, those that came before, they were all broken in their sin. But guess what? God met them in their brokenness. He redeemed, he reconciled, he restored, and he used these men and these households for his glory to accomplish his purposes. So what's the application to us? Embrace our brokenness. Embrace your brokenness. Don't try to hide from it. Don't try to deny it. Don't try to put lipstick on that pig that is our brokenness. Because it's always going to be brokenness. Stop trying to pick yourself up by your bootstraps. Trying to, trying to clean up your act before you come to God. Because we don't come to God. He comes to us. He meets us in our brokenness. And all the dynamics here of hatred and scheming and murderous anger that is going to unfold in the days ahead. Friends, God is there and he's working and he's he is playing out his perfect plan of redemption. And it is beautiful. So here we have Joseph this evening, this young shepherd favored by his father, rejected by his brothers. God will use this Joseph mightily to point future generations to the perfect son, Jesus Christ, who is favored by his father, but rejected by his brothers. But yet this Christ will allow us the means to be able to call out upon the name of the Lord and be saved. It's the mystery of this Christ, this gospel, 
And as we see Joseph as a Christological figure, this mystery of the story of redemption is so unbelievable that that mystery has been made known to us in the pages of Scripture for our day right here on August 22nd of 2020. That that story of redemption has been working out millennia after millennia. And that is incredible. God is faithful. He is redeeming a remnant. He is calling men and women and young people to himself. Why? Not for the benefit of those. Why? But so that we can point others back to the glory of the Father. Say, look at this creator. Look at this one who owns all things and spoke all things into existence. It is he who has done this work. And it truly is glorious. So let's pray this evening and ask the Lord to revive our hearts and to use this time now as we transition to the Lord's table to change us to be more like this one who has saved us, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this evening. Thank you for the gospel, the good news of Jesus. We thank you for giving us figures such as Adam, such as Jacob.